The last two chapters in Acts contain the details of an amazing shipwreck, where all the crew and passengers are brought safely to the island of Malta. The story is really better than a similar reality TV program you may have watched. And for several reasons, it's also a fitting end to Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles. Welcome to episode 64, Survivor, Malta. This is Greg Hall, and you have found your way to the first episode of 2023, and the last in our series on the Book of Acts. We started our walk through the Book of Acts way back in May of last year, and it has been a very fruitful journey. If you are one who has listened through the whole series, you might remember some of the episodes. Some of my favorites are the episodes where I ventured into the topic of speaking in tongues and the gift of interpretation. Now, I'm not one who has spoken in tongues, but I definitely have an opinion about what the scripture has to say about that gift. And for those of you who listened, you know that my take on tongues doesn't fit nicely into any other preconceived notions. So, I have to say that episodes 44, 46 especially, 53, and 59 were maybe the most satisfying for me to record. And I'd be interested in hearing from you regarding what episodes you enjoyed the most in the series. Well, to round out our series today, we will look at the last two chapters in the book. And just to review the narrative of these chapters, it goes something like this. Paul leaves from Caesarea on a ship heading towards Rome. He's under guard, and he's awaiting his trial before the court of Caesar. And eventually, they get blown off course while trying to find a safe place to harbor for the winter. They are helplessly blown around the Mediterranean Sea for 14 days. And it's during this time that an angel visits Paul and assures him that no problem, everybody's going to live. But despite that, the ship does wreck on a reef, and it's the night before that shipwreck that Paul leads everyone in a meal on the ship. And the next day, all 276 people aboard the boat are able to swim to shore after the boat is dismantled by the rocks. Well, once on land, the natives are very kind to those who are shipwrecked. But when a snake bites Paul on the hand as he's building a fire, they assume that he's a criminal. That's their thought process. But when he doesn't die, they flip and turn, and they change their mind. And now they think he's some sort of a god. After three days, Paul heals a very important man on the island, and eventually Paul makes his way to Rome, where he preaches the gospel to whomever will listen. Well, that's just a short recap, but we will dive into certain aspects of that narrative as we go throughout the rest of the episode. So it's the journey on the boat, Acts 27 and 28. That is the longest narrative in the entire book of Acts. It's interesting that Luke doesn't end the book with like a long speech or a sermon by Paul, which he could have easily done. 
But Luke decides to end his account with this grand narrative of a shipwreck. And many commentators have noticed some similarities to other stories in the Bible. For instance, some see the similarities the shipwreck story has with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. So let me lay out just a few of the similarities. Uh, Each of these features a boat carrying a messenger of God in a storm. Jonah in the Old Testament is running from God, but Paul, in contrast, is following God's plan. And it's in the story of Jonah that the prophet of God is thrown overboard to save those on the ship. But in Paul's story here in Acts, God's messenger stays on board to save his fellow passengers. And probably most importantly, in both cases, God's good news ends up being presented to the Gentiles. So there are some thematic similarities to the Jonah story for sure. But what about some others? Well, you may not have noticed it before, but Paul's journey has some obvious connections to the Old Testament Exodus story, which includes that first Passover coming out of Egypt. Both the Exodus and Paul's shipwreck features deliverance through water. And it's in that process that both mention the use of a strong wind, the darkness is mentioned, the disappearance of the sun and the moon, and Specifically talking about the Passover event, both stories mention the 14th night and the phrase about midnight. We'll talk about this more within the episode, but right before the ship is wrecked, Paul presides over a meal that has similarities to the Last Supper, which is a Passover celebration, uh, again, a remembrance of the event of the Exodus. But Perhaps the most interesting aspect of this connection with the Exodus is that the comparison puts Israel, or more specifically Jerusalem, on the wrong side of the water. Israel is left behind in Paul's story and seems to be equated with the Exodus out of Egypt. It's Paul that's escaping an Egypt-like situation And like the ancient Israelites, he's leaving with the riches of the land. In this case, he's taking the riches of the gospel into new lands with him. And if that's a new perspective for you, that the Israel of Jesus and Paul's day would have been equated with an Egypt-type situation, it's not the only time that comparison is made within the Bible. First century Israel and Old Testament Egypt is also brought together in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, specifically Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It's there where an angel tells Joseph to take his family and escape to Egypt. And the text says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. But then verse 15 says that he remained there until the death of Herod. And that this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Most readers, and maybe you're one of them, assume that the prophecy that's quoted there, 
the out of Egypt I called my son, that that refers to Jesus' journey from Egypt back to Israel after Herod's death. But in the narrative, Jesus doesn't return to Israel until an angel gives the instruction to do so in verse 19. Out of Egypt I called my son isn't applied to the return trip back to Israel. It's applied to the family's trip out of Israel when they were traveling to Egypt. In the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and here again at the end of the book of Acts, Israel takes on the symbolic or maybe thematic role of Old Testament Egypt. And that's backed by many statements that Jesus made about the Israel of his time as well. It was a thematically dark land. It was spiritually dark. And it was so dark there that they did not recognize the voice of very God himself. Either through the mouth of Jesus or here in the book of Acts, the voice of Paul. In previous episodes, we've talked about the we passages where Luke seems to include himself within the narrative and joins Paul on his journeys. These last two chapters are all we passages, and it appears that Luke was with Paul as he left Israel and continued with him throughout the journey to Rome. And it's not just the use of we and us that gives us that clue. The level of detail given in the account also suggests that it was written by an eyewitness. And I'd like to make some comments uh, out of an article entitled Military Leaders and Jonah in the Writings of Luke, Part 2. It's a journal article written by Kenneth Yates back in 2016. He says this about these last two chapters. A striking feature of Paul's journey to Rome in Acts 27 and 28 is that the gospel is not preached. There are a number of miracles that occur, including Paul's miraculous predictions on the ship, his salvation from a snake bite, and the healings on Malta. Even when the soldiers cut the small boat away from the ship in chapter 27, verse 32, that actually made Paul's prediction of everyone's survival more difficult because they didn't have that small boat to help them anymore. Even despite that, it all became true. So Yates says that the combination of miracles and the friendly attitude of the Gentiles toward Paul prompts the question, why did Paul not preach the gospel to any of them? Especially since we find out in chapter 28, verse 11, that before they sailed on to Rome, they spent three months on the island. Yates says that the apparent omission is even more amazing because elsewhere in Acts, Miracles are a prelude to the preaching of the gospel. We see that in Acts chapter 3, chapter 14, and again in chapter 19. Miracles throughout the book of Acts confirm the truth of the good news. And it's this perspective that has led some to conclude that the gospel was indeed preached on the ship and on Malta, even though Luke, the author, is silent on the issue. The opportunity to proclaim the good news of Christ would have been too good to pass up for Paul. 
And in turn, we may assume that Luke probably had some reasons for not recording the preaching of the gospel to those on the island. So breaking away from Yates, I would suggest, like we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, that Luke has decided to create a grand narrative to tell the story of the spread of the gospel. And in that, he has decided to tell the story short of including whatever preaching Paul may have done. And he's able to do this, just tell the story and exclude the preaching, because it's this narrative about Paul that clearly demonstrates how Jesus' followers begin to assume the ministry of Jesus by reliving the ministry of Jesus. Well, what do I mean? Lots of people have noticed some of the obvious parallels in the stories of Jesus and Paul. So it's not a unique perspective, but I've not found anyone who does it more extensively and I would suggest more poetically than one of my former professors. We know him well here on the podcast, Dr. Warren Gage. Dr. Gage was a guest on the podcast as we finished our study of the book of John, and we'll look at more of his work right now in regards to Paul on the island of Malta. I'm going to be sharing a comparison that Dr. Gage gives in his book, Return from Emmaus, the resurrection theme in Scripture. And it's in this example where first, Dr. Gage will recap a rendition of Jesus's ministry, highlighting certain words, and then retelling the story of Jesus through the ministry of Paul, using some of those same words and terminology in the book of Acts. And his suggestion is that Luke uses similar vocabulary and similar structure in storytelling to not only suggest, but to show how the followers of Jesus are carrying on his ministry. So first from Dr. Gage, here is the summary of Jesus's ministry. He says, Jesus taught that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things for the gospel. John the Baptist had earlier identified the religious leaders of Jerusalem as the brood of vipers who would sting Jesus. But he said, that they would be cast into the fire. Jesus taught that his people would be safe from the trials to come. He said that not a hair of your head will perish. Before he suffered, Jesus took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it and then gave it to his disciples. When Jesus was tried, they kindled the fire because it was cold. Jesus was crucified in his hands and feet according to the custom. He suffered as a criminal between two thieves. As he suffered, the sun was darkened. The centurion, however, when he saw what was done, glorified God. Jesus arose from the lethal wounding on the third day, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he solemnly testified from the scriptures concerning himself. And he commanded that repentance should be proclaimed to all the nations. So they then worshipped him. That recap by Dr. Gage highlights items of Jesus' ministry that are presented specifically in Luke's gospel. Then Dr. Gage goes on to say this, After the same manner, 
the Lord's Apostle Paul was told it was necessary for him to suffer for the Lord's name. He found himself bound on a ship in a storm. For many days, the sun did not appear. Paul encouraged the sailors to eat, saying that the bread was for their salvation. So he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. He assured them that not a hair of your head will perish. After the ship broke apart in the storm, Paul, with the rest, washed up on Malta. Because it was cold, they kindled a fire. Paul gathered wood for the fire, and a viper came out of the sticks and fixed on his hand. Paul, however, shook the viper off into the fire. The islanders thought Paul must be a criminal when they saw the viper, but when they saw that it did Paul no harm, they imagined that he was a god. After three days, Paul began to do miracles of healing. Paul and the centurion who had tried to save Paul's life were sent on their way, and in Rome, Paul solemnly testified concerning Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets, announcing repentance to the nations. And that's Gage's summary of Paul's ministry told by Luke in the book of Acts. And I hope that as I just read through that, you recognize some of the similarities. Now, sometimes they're verbal similarities. They're actually using the same vocabulary, but more importantly, they're thematic similarities that Luke is drawing out in his retelling of these events. And Gage is by no means the only theologian that has recognized some of these themes. In another work of Dr. Gage uh, that he co-wrote with Stephen Carpenter, entitled A Literary Guide to the Life of Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke Acts, he says this, The dark night on the sea is emblematic of Paul's cross, and the escape on Malta, his resurrection. By virtue of his faithfulness, he has died and risen again with Christ already. While the ending of Acts presumes Paul's eventual martyrdom, the storm Malta scene is designed by Luke as a figurative death-resurrection story. The early morning gathering on Malta has the feel of a resurrection morning. The old has passed away, the new has come. Thus, the ending of Acts affirms that Paul is resurrected in Christ already. So breaking away from that synopsis, I have mentioned before that Dr. Gage has started a new nonprofit ministry called Watermark Gospel. It's a nonprofit that produces short animated videos that draw out some of these comparisons between the ministry of Jesus and his followers and some of the other themes presented throughout the Bible. And he specifically has a video titled Paul on Malta. And I'd like to take just a couple minutes to share the audio from this video, Paul on Malta, by Watermark Gospel. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner on a ship headed to Rome that encountered a terrible storm. Paul gave the men on the ship bread, saying it was for their salvation. Then at daybreak, the ship struck a reef, and everyone swam ashore to the island of Malta. Paul gathered wood for a fire, 
But as Paul was laying the wood on the fire, suddenly a poisonous viper came out of the wood and pierced his hand. Paul had suffered a deadly wounding by the serpent. At first, the people of Malta thought Paul was a criminal God had condemned. But Paul simply shook the viper into the fire. And in spite of his deadly wounding, Paul remained alive. When the Maltese realized Paul had escaped death, they wondered if he was a god. Three days after his deadly wounding by the serpent, Paul began a ministry of healing on the island, saving the governor's father from a deadly fever. Hearing the good news, the Gentile people of Malta began coming to Paul to be healed of all their diseases. Does this story sound familiar? Like Paul, Jesus was destined to have a deadly encounter with the serpent, Satan. At the Last Supper, Jesus gave his disciples bread for their salvation. The next day, Jesus carried the wood of his cross to Calvary, where he received a deadly piercing in the hand. The ones who called for him to receive that deadly piercing were the religious leaders in the temple. John the Baptist had called them the offspring of the serpent. He said they were a brood of vipers that would be cast into the fire. In his death, Jesus was regarded as a criminal like Paul, crucified among thieves. But after three days, Jesus was delivered from death and his disciples worshiped him as God. Like Paul, Three days after his deadly wounding by the serpent, Jesus began a ministry of healing, saving the multitudes of all the earth from death. Now, anyone who hears the good news of Jesus' saving power, whether Jew or Gentile, is welcome to come to him to ask for salvation. Well, we're going to close out today's episode and our study of the book of Acts with a couple comments by Craig Keener out of the IVP Bible Background Commentary, and then also some by Gregory Beale out of his 2018 book, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And I wanted to end on this because at the end of chapter 28, right before the end of the whole book, Luke chooses to quote an Old Testament passage out of Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a very familiar passage to New Testament readers. By this point in the narrative, Paul is in Rome, and he is sharing with some of his Jewish friends about Jesus and Jesus' ministry. And it says in verse 24 of the last chapter, Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. This is what Paul left them with. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And then Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, 
they will also listen. And regarding that quote of Isaiah 6, Craig Keener, out of his commentary, says this, Paul's citation of Isaiah 6 climaxes a theme throughout Acts, that most of God's own chosen people reject their Messiah. While Gentiles accept him not as simply amazing, but as the fulfillment of Scripture. It's this Isaiah 6 passage. It's been an area of focus of Dr. Gregory Beale for many years, and he has written extensively on the idea of what this Isaiah 6 passage means in its original context, and then also, why is it quoted so often in the New Testament? Every gospel mentions it. It's mentioned here. It's also mentioned in the book of Romans. What is the message that this Isaiah 6 passage means when it's brought into the New Testament? Beale says this, The primary function of the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel was to warn Israel of its impending doom and the divine judgment. That's in the Old Testament. Especially because of their stance towards idolatry. These prophets delivered their warnings in a rational and sermonic way, exhorting the audience about their sin and reminding them about their past history in which God has judged their fathers because of the same kind of selfish disobedience. But these prophetic messengers had little success because of Israel's idolatrous allegiances, which resulted in a stiff-necked attitude against changing the ways to which they had grown accustomed. They had become spiritually lifeless like their idols and spiritually hardened to rationale, historical, and homiletical warnings. And breaking away from Beale for just a second, this is the main point of most of his studies about Isaiah 6. That passage is originally given to a group of people that are idol worshipers. And it's language within the Old Testament that Beale highlights that suggests that when you worship an idol, in their context, what would have been a God statue with eyes and ears and a mouth, you, as a worshiper, become like that idol. Your eyes stop functioning in the spiritual realm. Your ears stop working. You become deaf and blind to the spiritual truths because of your idol worship. And it's that Isaiah 6 passage that predicts a time in the future after the exile out of the land and after the return to the land where the same people will have the same problem. Isaiah is predicting Jesus's generation, and he's predicting that they will have the same problem. So when we get to the New Testament, and Isaiah is plucked out of its context in the Old Testament and planted squarely in the Gospels and here at the end of the book of Acts. What Jesus and the New Testament authors are saying, the generation that they were speaking to in the first century in Israel had become just like their fathers. Through idol worship, they had become deaf and blind to the things of the spiritual realm. So deaf and blind that very God himself and those representing him, though these people were standing right before them, speaking the very truth of God, they were not willing to accept it. You may have been told that it's this passage that shows how God takes control and causes some people to believe and other people not to believe. 
He is the one doing the closing of the eyes and the ears. But what Beale points out, and I think rightly so, is that the original context of that passage and the prediction of the future is regarding a lifestyle of idol worship that causes those people to become like that which they worship. And in turn, those people that don't worship idols, but follow the one true God displayed through the scriptures, they will become more like that which they worship, and their eyes will be opened, and their ears will be able to hear the truth when it's presented to them. So throughout the Gospels and here in the book of Acts, especially in this last chapter when Paul is in Rome, his conclusion is to bring out this Isaiah 6 passage. So closing out uh, our study today, going back to Keener, on the last couple of verses in the book of Acts, he says this, At the end of two years, if no accusers had arrived and no charges had been sent against him, Paul would normally be automatically released. And he suggests that's what would have happened. Keener also says, Paul was later arrested again and beheaded. But Luke wishes to end on a note of positive legal precedent. A number of ancient works had sudden endings, but in contrast to many Greek works, Luke wishes to end happily. That Paul would preach under the very nose of the Praetorian Guard suggests that before Nero instituted his persecution against the Christians, they were tolerated under Roman law. Luke's defense of Christianity on legal and philosophical grounds paved the way for second-century defenders of Christianity, and Keener suggests that it also points the way for Christian lawyers, statespersons, and others to work in society today. And that is how Luke decides to end his account of the Acts of the Apostles. Well, that is a wrap on Acts. We've made our way through one of the most significant books of the Bible. It's the book that narrates what happened to the Jesus movement after Jesus ascended to heaven. And it's the narrative that you and I both find ourselves within. And that's because the gospel has been spread from that time until now. In the next episode, we begin our conversation about biblical rest. And we do that by talking to Curtis Zachary, the author of Soul Rest. I am really excited to share with you the conversation that we recorded a few weeks ago. So I want to give you a fair warning. Hold on to your seats and get ready to do some rethinking in regards to your understanding of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest.